0: What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. How do genital practices vary around the world? Why might you want to arrange your own marriage? And what should you do if you and your partner have far different hopes around raising kids? Today, I am so pleased to introduce you all to someone I respect and admire so much, Dr. Sara Nasrzade, to explore these topics and more. Dr. Sara is a social psychologist and thought leader in the fields of cultural fluency, diversity and inclusion, and sexual health and relationships. Her commitment to the growth of our human community manifests in her multidimensional efforts. She's a prolific, award-winning author with two books in English, several book chapters, and many peer-reviewed articles to her credit. As a former member of the International Federation of Journalists, Dr. Sara created and hosted a program called The Whispers for the BBC World Service on Sexuality and Relationship Issues, which received BBC's Innovation of the Year Award in 2007. Whispers is the first of its kind in the Middle East and reaches millions of Farsi-speaking viewers across the globe. Besides her clinical work as a psychosexual therapist and couples counselor, Dr. Sara has presented more than 500 keynotes and workshops on a variety of topics and has been nominated and received a range of honors and awards, including being named one of the Best Loved Doctors by Harper's Bazaar. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. Thank you for having me. You are one of the first experts who was so generous and kind to open uh, the doors to me as journalist um, years ago at the first World Sexual Health Day celebration in New York City, which was such an incredible honor. You've introduced me to so many wonderful people. I've learned so much from you. And you introduced me to Dr. Megan Fleming, who's our resident sex and relationship expert. So I I have to thank you not only for your work, but for everything that you've done to help pave the way for me. Absolutely. Thank you for being you. And thank you
1: for following through with everything that you were offered.
0: Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I'm very curious about some of your recent research. You've been studying genital practices around the world, which is fascinating to
1: me. What inspired this? Well, you know, as a clinician, um, I'm a psychosexual therapist, right? So I don't—I work with people's sexuality. We talk about sexuality. I can use a psychoeducation material, all of that. But I never had the privilege to examine my clients. So what is going on with you? So when you have recurring pain or recurring yeast infection or something uh, medically going on, I often have a team of experts around me to support me with the GYNs and physical therapies and all those wonderful colleagues with different skills. So it really amazed me as I added in my history-taking question, initial questionnaire, as have you been altered? Because, you know, the most that many people ask is for a male client or male identified client with a a penis that they ask, um, have you been circumcised? But I don't know how many colleagues out there ask a person, have you been altered in your genitalia in any form or shape? Or what are your hygiene practices? Do you decorate your uh, genitalia? How do you groom? So all of these that over the years came up in my conversations with couples, I really wanted to know more about. And also, as we go more like you know, we grow as a cross cultural community. So as you know, I practice in London and then New York City, Palo Alto, now in Los Angeles. So I see so many people from so many different parts of the world, and um, and it's amazing. Until you ask, it doesn't even occur to them to bring it up to you. Uh, So it's very important that, um, so I started with that, but then it led to some more understanding as who owns somebody's genitalia, who are we offering our genitalia to, in what manners, how do we regard it, and the names that people have for their genitalia. I actually asked them in the first session. So growing up, was there any specific name? that you address your genitalia with?
0: What were some of the most common responses to that question? Because I know I've heard things like I learned the, the private parts. I learned down there. Yeah. I learned pee-pee and Vijay <laughs> What were
1: some of the most common? So for penises, we have names such as um, pipe, fox, dragon, um, golden dragon, um, eagle, we have all sorts of names that represent power and performance. And then for women and, uh, or anybody with vulvas, um, they have names like diamond, like um, mostly fruits for diamond, like papayas. Really? <laughs> it's very interesting. And little animals like mouse. Um, actually, in, in one of the countries that I was interviewing, they said shame it's literally called shame. So it's very interesting. And then, you know, those names is not, um, you know, the questions around names is not only based on curiosity, but also if you have genuine interest to understand what it does to the person, you will see as how they regard so, their genitalia. So, for example, if you're in, in a relationship with somebody who grew up all their lives and calling their penis a uh, golden dragon, they have a lot of expectation of that little part of the body. Absolutely. And then versus somebody that calls it sausage, for example, or somebody else, something else. And then for women, somebody who grew up calling their genitalia shame versus somebody that called it diamond. Very different experiences.
0: Very different. And I imagine it goes both ways as far as words reflect our culture, but they also help shape it.
1: Absolutely.
0: What were your main goals for the research? Did you go in with like a specific uh, kind of outcome you were supp- you
1: wanted to gather? Well, you know, one of the first questions that I thought would be a good grounding uh, um, question was, um, I just posed the question, do you know of any practices uh, for rite of passage to adulthood, to womanhood, to manhood? And uh, there's good amount of research out there on those and then i went to different religious groups and i also my united nations you know colleagues i went to them and reached out to the country offices and if they know of anything and then i posted on my social media as so that was the first question as um when you, when was the time that you knew you're not a little girl anymore and you're a woman or when was the time that you realized that you are not a boy anymore and you're a man now what a and great what question. came with
0: it well yeah you. yeah and I would imagine for many women and girls and people with vulvas, they were saying when I started menstruating, right? Was that a common response?
1: Well, you know, some of them had actually talks with their parents, with aunties, depending on the culture. Uh, some of them, um, unfortunately, many, many, many people learned it the hard way. Like, for example, a boy had wet dream and they thought for the longest time, they thought, oh, I peed but I'm 12, but I'm 13. So how come I peed in my dream? So, you know, those sort of stories I heard. And then as they started in the era of internet, uh, looking it up, oh, maybe I'm becoming a man. You know, so those sort of stories I heard. And uh, for women, um, if menstruation was a part of sexuality education, uh, they were not, like they didn't panic, but unfortunately, it wasn't the case for everybody. And you will be amazed because we call some countries advanced and first world countries, or whatever we call them, and we call some countries third world countries and developing countries. And you will be amazed, as uh, my research shows that it's n- there's not much of a difference. We're all very uh, similar. Yeah, as far as sometimes, actually, there, they, right? they do
0: much better. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see that. Was there one country in particular that you could name as an example where they seem to be more positive and healthy in the ways they view their genitals and their sexuality?
1: I would say around the world by large Scandinavian countries, Uh, I would say they started very early, like it's been for a while, like decades that they've been working on that. It's a very natural part of their education. So you talk about how to blow your nose and you talk about menstruation. So it's a very, it's not something like a taboo, but still, we have this glorified image of Scandinavian countries as well. Like, for example, when I was in Sweden, if you go to more rural areas, there's still not as advanced. So unfortunately, I can't say what country, like the Netherlands has been that, you know, like a poster yes. country for sexuality, yes. education and knowledge. And I'm not sure if it's a comprehensive understanding everywhere. Yeah. Um, but in countries where you go, like, for example, some tribes in um, Africa that I visited, uh, they have this way of, as, as they call it in their language, chest to chest education. So they go around and then they teach. Aunties teach the little girls or also oh, this is coming. This is how it works. And um, they had some understanding. Some others they didn't. Some others had the cutting practices going on. And um, um, some very interesting, not in American way of interesting, you know, in the British term of interesting, you know, um, practices that um, as what defines you as a man. Um, okay, I'm just going to give you an example. Like, for example, in one of the um, groups that I studied, and colleagues also studied them um, pretty well. Um, If you're a young boy and you're able to swallow semen of the older people in the community, then that's your sign that you know you, you you are growing up or for example in north part of kenya um, there's a group that you know they have sex with donkeys to make sure that the penises are long and they get enough practices before they sleep with women so there are so many different practices or um, there is a native group in australia that they cut the penis in half and then they make it look like and that's the optimum way of um, uh, evolving to an adult man. wow
0: and I imagine that would have an impact on pleasure and function, does it? Or are they able to
1: still? You see, August, that's a a very good question. Who is measuring that, though? You know what I mean? Because, you know, I met so many people and I know that, you know, um, there's a huge divide. I was, you know, a while back I was interviewed by, um, you know, a colleague of mine. And then I talked about genital practices and genital cutting in women. I... I am absolutely pro-sexual right and bodily integrity for everybody, for boys and girls for that matter. Just make it clear. Um, But the thing is, it's a very confusing world out there. I'm a sexologist, I have so many degrees that it's almost embarrassing to put you know, in front of my name, but still I can't decide if I have a son, am I going to circumcise him or not? Because the research is not conclusive, mm, right? There's a lot of nuance. There, there's a lot of nuance, and also it depends who does the research. Mm, yeah. So what are you trying? We think that research is not really biased, but if you do research, you know research is biased. Yeah, you know, so it's sure. a very, it's a very um, complicated, um, complicated. Um, yes, yes. World. I, I've always
0: appreciated one of the first things I learned from you. I think you spoke about it at the World Sexual Health Day uh, event about. Changing the terminology that people who say genital mutilation to not use that. Would you speak to why that's so important?
1: Because it was so impactful. when I Sure, that. and I know that when I say that, you know, some people say, "How could you? How dare you?" You know, they can't even, you know, they skin. Uh, what do you say in English? They skin crawls. The the chills. They get yeah, the, the, they get the chills, and they feel like, oh my god, how dare she's just you know talking about that, but those people have not had experiences in Sudan, in Egypt. I worked with those women. I can't just walk into a room and say that I'm so sorry you're mutilated, you're debilitated. It's so patronizing unless a client comes to you And says, I've been mutilated, I've been traumatized, I've been whatever, then yes, work with them and then use the same language, you know, whatnot. But unfortunately, the first time that mutilation was used was in an advocacy group. And it's amazing that he did it. You know, he was an Egyptian doctor who brought it to WHO. And then we talked about it. And now, even at the UN level, we have mutilation versus, you know, slash cutting. Because even piercing, could be categorized as mutilation, did you know that? Interesting, and that's like, very now? accepted here for the most part. Exactly, so who is defining what? Right. And it's the same mentality to me that goes to different countries and then try to impose the democracy that we know of. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. And I love it when this creates reaction in people because that's why I do what I do, yeah, that's how you create change and open people's eyes to
0: awareness. It's, yeah, it's so, so important. Whenever I am sharing my work like in my girl Boner books at the beginning, I make it very clear that this is for a largely u s audience that there may be takeaways for other cultures, but every, you know, because just that that sort of context is really important so that we don't shame people because I imagine it can be, Also self-fulfilling in a way, but imposed on another person. When you say to someone, you've been mutilated, you must not experience any pleasure, this is terrible. What if that person is experiencing pleasure? Mm -hmm. Or what if they're so young they don't know yet if they will or not? And then they just write it off and think, oh my gosh, I will never have an enjoyable sex life. Yes,
1: and can you imagine the trauma? And while we are doing that, we need to do advocacy. You know, I call myself like water I don't need to change the blocks. I will find a way to work with that community, to change mentality. Like, you know, um, if we have that mentality, what I love about your book, August, both of them, the workbook and the other one, is um, um, the respect, the grace that you bring to the conversation. And I think that is missing. We learn to talk about sex. It's all, everything is all about sex and sensualizing and you know, whatnot. And it's a natural part of you. Just own it. And like, you know, live with it and regard it with respect. And respect is so important. And um, it's very interesting that, you know, colleagues who say, you know, why do we call it cutting? It's like a paper cut. It's not cutting. People are being mutilated. I know. I know. The first time that I ever worked with a person within a community and I had to go like uh, I couldn't sit for the practice obviously because I just couldn't like somatically I couldn't take it. I threw up for several hours after so it's not as if, oh, yeah, let me just, you know, bring this stigma down and let them do whatever. But also, I'll tell you something. I gave a talk on genital practices in, at the Stanford University. Uh, was it three years ago at our event, World Sexual Health Day? And then um, a lady, a young, intelligent, beautiful, empowered lady stood up in front of 400, 500 people and said, this is the first time I'm admitting to the world I have been caught Yes. And, you know, like it brings so much emotion to me that, you know, that woman felt for the first time that this person is talking to the crowd and allowing me to embody what I have my experiences, and she went on to talk about how it was important for her at that age, for the mother, for the father. She is living with the consequences, but she dealt with it. She Mm. went through it, it's a part of her life. So I can't ignore that. I can't just walk the world and say that, hey, you know, this is so advocacy and activism matters, but grassroots work is what that makes things happen. Bringing that out into the light
0: was such a powerful thing that you allowed for. And it really illustrates how isolating it must be for somebody to feel they don't have a voice because everyone's talking about their experience. It reminds me of uh, a guest I interviewed who said that everyone in the media was talking about her sexual assault that she'd been through. And they were talking about it as though it was like this only thing about her. And it was very dehumanizing and so to, to give the story back to the person it belongs to, not that everyone needs to be public about it, but to say, I want to learn from you. I'm not going to instruct you about your own body.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, there are lots of very good uh, TED Talks, very good, um, again, advocacy about it, women coming, talking. And I think that's very powerful. That's amazing because research shows that men have little role in this. Women are doing this to women. So it's very important to raise awareness. But when it comes to changing the culture, working with the community, I cannot go in and say that, oh, you savages, you know, that that's just what, what, what will that do? Yeah. And what am I? Right. Who said I'm doing the right thing?
2: Mm, you know,
1: yeah, so where would yeah. that put me that top down? I remember one time they called me, you know, it was in what was it? 2005 now. I, um, you know, I was invited to go to Australia because there was this disconnect between the group uh, that wanted to work, international NGO, and um, a native community. By the time I get there, I'm usually called to, to the negotiations um, when the doors are locked, you mm-hmm. know, like, yeah. uh, and people are called hard to reach. And I always put them in quote, my PhD was actually on that, that, you know, quote-unquote hard to reach, because if you know how to reach them, nobody's hard to reach, we're all human. Yeah. Yeah. We are all reflections of the source. I mean, what are you talking about? You know, we are all the same. So I go in and the doors are shut. I mean, there is no way to get in. And I'm talking to the leader of the community. And I, I said, are you with them? I said, well, you know, they hired me. That's one of the reasons I don't affiliate with anything and anyone because I want to have my own, you know, like standing. So I said, well, you know, they hired me because they really care about your health. And they asked me because they consent, can I just talk? And then um, he said, what are they concerned about? I said, well, you know, there are some, some rituals that you have, and I think they don't understand what's going on. May, you know, can we have a conversation and see how things are done? And I hear your reasoning and what is going on. And also I will bring their reasoning And then he said, uh, and, and, you know, the group went in with pages of research. Research means nothing to the tribe of that sort. Oh, my gosh. That would be so
0: intimidating. (laughs) Like, here's a textbook for you. (laughs) Yeah. In old language you don't really, you know, academically.
1: Exactly. And the research is not even done with that community. So they Mm. said, well, these white people came and said that, you know, this is what is happening. This is a disease of young, uh, you know, uh, white people. This is not what, you know, I talk about these mm-hmm. cases in my book, uh, yes. Wheel of Context. Yes. Um, so it's like, a, so I go in and then I talk to them and then we open the door. By the time we go in and they were so angry, they were called savages. They were called like, you know, you're not, you're isolating, you're not integrating with the main society. So, you know, you first have to lick the wound, so to speak, just to bring the crisis down and then open the door. And it could have been prevented by some respect. Respect is so powerful. So powerful.
0: I really appreciate the ways that you talk about love. You share wonderful messages on social media and when you're speaking about creating, like that, this, this proactive process. We have so much decision uh, ourselves to make about it that it doesn't just sort of happen <laughs> to us i love this concept of arranging your own marriage i'm not sure i've ever heard it before
1: what is that i did it for myself yeah um <clears throat> that's um let me see okay so i'll put it this way for you august uh, I know that, you know, we had several conversations about that, and I'm trying not to jump ahead and give the basics, you know, for, the, for um, your audience as well. So why I believe that you can arrange your own marriage. I'm from Iran, educated in England, lived in New York City and then California, and I worked, literally worked, not only traveled, in 38 countries. Um. Here's what I saw. In Northern America... We talk about individualism. We talk about choices. We talk about all of those, right? And then when it comes to love, which is apparently something that we are all looking for, and it's not actually apparently. This is what we're geared for. There is no choice. Are you kidding me? (laughs)
0: I don't get to. It's not just going to be Cupid's arrow (laughs) show up for you or or even just that you can swipe through the app and you're going to find the one like this this concept that there is one person. I remember feeling that way growing up that there would be because my mom married her first love and it's been wonderful like it worked out great but not everyone is that way and uh, so I expected that and then what ended up happening is I would you would kind of settle for something that wasn't perhaps what you wanted it to to um, be or doesn't have the potential I guess I would say um, and I'm glad my first relationship didn't keep going because I don't think that I think it was more just I decided this person was the one uh, but I also love this idea of you, you have to make the decision to nurture it like what what Megan often says is the it's not that the grass is greener on the other side the grass is greener where you <laughs> water, water it yeah I love yeah that
1: that's absolutely true. And you know, from, um, I'm coming very much from the um, philosophical perspective of um, phenomenology. So it doesn't matter what you look at, it's what you see that matters right? Yeah. So people see what they want to see. And that what they want to see is the comfort. Can I go a little bit nerdy here? Please. Nerd okay. out. I love it. <laughs> because, you know, I think people really need to understand this. When you see somebody... And then that chemical reaction that you have, the chemistry infatuation that we talk about, right? Mm-hmm. That's real. When I see shoes, that happens to me. <laughs> yeah.
2: You know, that's yep. that's
1: very true. You know, mm-hmm. this, this happens when I see my favorite food that happens to me, yeah. right? The smell of it, you know, the mm-hmm. taste of it. All of that is exactly the same thing for the brain, right? Now, bear with me, people out there, okay? So the thing is, when somebody says, I'm looking for the one. They are looking externally. I'm so sorry to tell you they're lazy because, oh, somebody will come and prove themselves to me to be the one. And I will know instantly. And then we will live happily ever after. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So beautiful. Not happening, at least for all of my clients.
0: It reminds me, to use your your shoe example again, of the scene in Cinderella where
1: here comes the prince with the shoe and you're just sitting there and, yes. and your life changes. And you just, you know, have this gaze into the person's eyes. And I actually, there's science behind that. Let me clarify that. So you know how babies are born and then you hold them mostly. Um, it's school of thought. I'm not saying that it's 100% like, you know, randomized control trial proven, but there's a school of thought that talks about when the mother or the caregiver holds the baby, you do eye-to-eye gazing. So we are the only mammals that we need to regulate um, our emotions through an external person, you know, external um, stimuli. So. And let me elaborate more. If your mother is really anxious or calm, it um, affects you. Why? Because you need to be able to read that person's emotions to feel safe. Am I safe? Is she going to kill me? You know, so our safety, our survivor is um, based on somebody else's um, nervous system. The vibration of somebody else's nervous system. So people who evolve over a period of time and then who do differentiation at various levels, emotionally, relationally, socially, from their caregivers, they are better lovers. Why? Because when they are in front of an adult person, they know if they are relying on a wounded gut You know, that vagus nerve that um, goes from uh, gut to the brain. And that is the one that reacts to people. So if you grow up with wounds with like um, sort sort of um, not very secure attachments, (laughs) then basically you feel more comfortable around people who feel that void or who are more comfortable to you. That's how you get the um, butterfly sensation. Oh. people, I'm so sorry I'm breaking it for you. Okay. I
0: still love it, though. I mean, it's okay if it's science-y. I still, I think it's really interesting that that's what causes that fluttery feeling. Yeah. There's like a recognition. And it's so interesting. I, I can see that. I just even, you know, in my experience and friends' experiences, when they do find someone that they decide they want to share life with, mm-hmm. they often have a similar, either a similar upbringing, you know, similar um, value system based on, the family dynamic that they mm-hmm. had, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and then they call each other boring. If you find somebody boring, they're most likely be a very good long term partner. <laughs> I, I love this advice. <laughs> okay, I just need to think about. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I'm not saying that you know, go marry the most boring person, right? But what I'm saying, actually, there's a, g- a good book um, that I can recommend to your um, listeners to. Attached. Uh, by um, two colleagues, um, Amir Levine um, and um, his colleague who, you know, did this book. You can actually add it as a supplement maybe, you know, to this uh, sure, podcast sure. because I think it's a good book to understand so people understand their attachments and uh, how it works. Now, so that's one angle that we look at, right? Attachment, and how we grow up, la, la, la. And then the other thing is this sense of individualism is so overrated, and under-practiced that I cannot really, like, get my head around it. Could you just describe in a
0: nutshell for anyone? Because I I feel like this is a concept that not a lot of people have thought about that I've been thinking about quite a bit since you first brought it up is just the impact that has. So, how would you just define individualism in in this country? How does it kind of
1: manifest? Well, the individualism in the United States. First of all, the history of United States. Who is attracted to United States? People who looked for expanded horizons, who thought out of outside of the box, or who um, were being killed basically, who uh, who sought refuge in this country, right? Most often I hear, and I need to also put something out there, because many people think Americans are ignorant. But there is a reason for that. That's ignorance by choice most often. Why? Because most people wanted to live here and leave everything else behind to create the American life. Yes, That's why we blend well. That's why we are one country. That's why the language developed to be a very low-context language. What it means is we explain everything. We articulate everything. I studied in England, and then when I came here, my vocabulary range, you know, <laughs> expanded like, like crazy. Yeah. The reason is in England, amongst the Western countries, is the um, highest context country, which means that we don't talk as much. We don't use as much words. So we put things into context, and then we read the body language. We try to be, you know, in the context more. So not everything is articulated.
0: I see that in TV shows. Uh-huh. I love British, uh, like, thrillers and dramas because so much is said visually and through emotion and through the eyes. And it's, yeah. and I feel like here we want to
1: fill everything up almost. Like, there's so much. Was, but the, the thing is, there's a good reason behind that, August. Because we were all immigrants. So how else? Language is the least efficient, but sometimes... Sometimes most I have. Yeah. Yeah. So as an immigrant in a new setting, and you know, how do I communicate with you? I don't even share a background with you or a language for that matter. So it's important, you know, so that part aside, because I know that many people really criticize Americans for saying that, you know, they're ignorant, you know, they don't think but that's also sometimes by choice, historical choice, right? So now the sense of individualism. We talk about individualism and uh, yet US has the highest rate of chain stores. Right? Yes. So yes. if you look Franchises, at that, Starbucks on every corner. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So if I if that's the case, then where is the individualism? And then inside, uh, instead of people going inside themselves to create that uniqueness, know it, get to know it and bring that knowingness to the world as their unique offering, they try to differentiate in different ways, like, you know, in a more superficial way, so to speak.
0: Like uh, having a, a big following. Yes. Or, you know, some of these ways that, and I, of course, that's not a bad thing. I think it's wonderful to use these tools with good messages as you do. But but I think it can be very easy to think, oh, it, in order for me to have worth and value and impact and be mm-hmm. this unique, wonderful person, I need to have this quote unquote brand that is really popular and I have all these followers and instead of that internal yeah. growth. How does all of that uh, play out in relationships and
1: intimacy? Mm-hmm. You see, that's also um, something that um, we need to consider in the relationship, right? So if you look at relationships, the way that they are formed in the Western world, two people, I mean, imagine them, I mean, we're talking about only like two people A monogamous here. couple, Mono- sure. Um, yes, monogamous. Monogamous and, you know, between two people because sometimes people have monogamy they call it sequ- like ser- a primary partner. Primary, and- primary yeah. partner, yeah. yes. Yeah, exactly. So, polyamory and monogamation yeah. are different. So, um, excuse us for talking only about two people, but let's focus on these two. Imagine two circles, right? These two circles coming together and then they almost merge at a certain part, right? So they spend time together, da 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 That's one of the most complaints that you hear. My boyfriend doesn't call me. My girlfriend doesn't want to spend time with me, you know, because we have to be one. We have to become one. No, you don't. Please don't. Because that's a horrible thing. Be two whole people. Yes, two whole people and let the third entity, which is the relationship, emerge, And
0: still really nurturing your own individual self. Yes. Right? So so having your own life and desires that are not intertwined 24-7 with another person.
1: And the overflow goes to the relationship. That relationship is created based on abundance. But if I have lack, if I seek somebody based on lack, what happens is we are going to merge as two circles on top of each other. That's enmeshment that we talk about. That's what happens. That's where the sex is non-existent, okay? Uh, Yeah. Why? Because they, you know, my couples come to me. I ask the person A that, oh, what are your hobbies? And then they look to person B. I'm like, hello, I'm talking to you. They can't even define their own hobbies to me. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's a very interesting, Jebrach, Khalil Jebran Khalil has a very interesting saying that says in a temple, pillars have a specific um, distance to each other. If you bring them together, even by one inch, they will collapse. The whole temple will collapse. And I grew up with that. I grew up knowing that, you know, love doesn't mean that love is by choice. You know, that's that third entity that emerges. The other way of looking at it is that I know that many people might not share my spiritual beliefs, but I believe that we are reflections of the source. It could be Choda, which I grew up with. Choda is that entity that doesn't have gender and the creator of all. It could be God. It could be Jesus. It could be any, any entity that p- energy field, anything universe, that people believe yeah. in. Universe, sure. right? If you believe that everybody is a particle in that universe, when you see a pe- person in front of you, love is already there. Mm. That's another way of looking at it. Hence, if, I'm wa- if I want good sexual experience, then I go with that chemistry thingy. If I want a long-term life journey partner, then I start by looking at those five ingredients that I always talk about, right? So what, is, what are those fundamental potentials that you talked about earlier, right? That um, is there a potential? So we talk about dating, People go dating on dating, right? My sweet, darling ones who are listening to this, okay, don't go out to eat all the time, because the moment you eat, first of all, your focus is on a third entity. Second of all, your body is designed to send all the blood to your digestive system to digest your whatever you ate. Yeah, true. Right? Yeah. So, how are you going to exactly? manage a meaningful conversation after your belly is full, whether you like the food or not, and almost always alcohol is involved.
2: Right. You know.
1: So these are the things. Create shared experiences. Go for a walk. Go for a hike. Go travel. You know, we need to change perspective. Einstein says you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. We have to see the world anew. Ah. If you want anything different in your love life, you need to really... Change your perspective. Go look at it from the other side of the table. What is it that you're missing? What is it that you're doing that is not working for you? And um, the first time I gave a public talk on my love model, I call it turning love on its head. And uh, I truly believe it because we believe in this country that if you imagine a triangle, right? Mm -hmm. The triangle's tip is love here, you know, in the Western world, right? Mm -hmm. And then the rest will follow, you know? Don't you love me? But I thought you love me. Just love me. The rest will follow. Yeah, it's true. And when it doesn't, they end up in my office. And I am heartbroken. Now imagine that triangle on its base. So the tip is up rather Mm -hmm. than down. The foundation is there. The tip is going to be created, So that is so important that, you know, if really, you know, I often, uh, the first time I gave this talk was actually at Stanford. And uh, (laughs) the reaction of people, their jaws dropped. Some people were crying. Some people looking at me in disbelief. (laughs) Are you questioning everything that we grew up with? Uh, This is such an adjustment. I'm like, yeah. And it should be,
0: yes. It made me think of the many times and I know that I – this as well at certain points you go on a first date because it's not like you know stars falling out of the sky it feels a bit as you use the word boring and so many people will write the person off and say oh we didn't have chemistry we didn't I I didn't feel excited enough this person didn't feel but then I also hear from so many people and went through myself meeting people who were so superficially charming at the beginning, that it feels like this meant-to-be-ness. And really, it's a show that's not even real. And then it becomes a very painful relationship.
1: Yes. Our colleague, Helen Fisher, actually did research and showed that um, the average length of life for that infatuation phase, that, you know, like a really, really like an orange, sharp orange feeling, is um, two years. Wow. So no wonder many couples will really struggle.
0: And there's still so much goodness after that, right? If you are nurturing, I think some of her studies showed that the people who'd been in love for a long time, that they still had these wonderful chemical responses, not the same as the very beginning, but they had similar reactions still existing because, and I, I believe it was friendship that she said was the powerful force? Mm-hmm.
1: I have to say, um, friendship is the one. My good colleague, Dr. Gottman, has really um, good research on this. And also, I like what, um, the way that he looks at it, too. So he talks about that compassionate love. Because some people talk about true love. For me, coming from relativism, everything is relative. De- described true to me. You know, what is true? What is, you know, so I (laughs) need to understand. Um, And I really encourage people to go back and read philosophy, philosophy shaped all the way that people think in this world, I mean, in the Western world. And there are so many good books out there that you can read. And why is it that we talk about soulmate? Did you know that the uh, comic writer Aristophanes came up with the idea that you know, like, so there are so many things that people really just take it as, gra- you know, for granted. But maybe because I was exposed to different languages or different, you know, doctrines and ways of thinking, I thought, okay, so why this and not that? And um, so I think this is really important that people really investigate. Even in science, it's actually really funny. Like, you know, have you heard um, that if you have carrot juice, your eyesight will improve? I have, yes. Okay, so (laughs) do you know where that comes from? I don't. It's like incredible, right? We yeah. just take it for granted. My yeah. mama said, take carrot Something about vitamin
0: A, beta carotene. Yeah, but I don't know anything beyond that.
1: Exactly. So if you go back and see, you know, read the books of researchers who did research in the, um, um, you know, where everything came from. There are so many books out there. One of the things that stood out to me was this carrot story because my father always gave us carrot juices at four o'clock every evening. I mean, every afternoon. I'm like, okay, so I should have a very good eye tie. And then in the book, he talks about, um, he talks about how in the world war um, um, in England, they came up with this device that they could detect like it was a radar and they, they could detect what the opponent was doing, the Germans were doing. And then it was very funny that um, they didn't want their opponents to know uh, that they have this device. They said, no, it's just a matter of we're having a lot of carrots. <laughs> we have better eyesight. I mean... That was it. That really crashes the (laughs) whole thing, you know? So no wonder I question everything. It's good. It's good to do that. Right? It is good to do that. So I think, you know, and let's do that for the most important component of our life. And August, um, my mission in life these days is world peace, one relationship at a time. If we have that one anchoring relationship, If we know that somebody out there loves us, cares about us, our well-being, you know, is synced with us, and I have that motivation to create that third entity with, I truly believe that we walk in the world differently. Mm. We walk taller. We are kinder. We are more compassionate. It's a very different world. It's a very different world. If people can have the privilege to experience that. And I'm not talking about everybody getting married or in a long-term relationship, whatnot, but it's very important to have that one person.
0: That compassionate love. I love that term, instead of saying true. I think it brings up such a sense of care and heart-centeredness mm-hmm. and, um, and wanting the best for a person and for you and for the relationship So for people who are hearing this, and it is rather world shifting for them, and they're like, I don't even know where to start. What are some of the practical steps to take if you have been living in a way where you see love as this, like the the top of the triangle?
1: First, know yourself. And I'm not talking about knowing yourself by going back through past trauma. And, you know, you need to lick your wounds. You need to become your whole self. You need to connect to that whatever that you believe in, energy source to yourself, to whatever that you believe in, to your truth. Just connect to that. When you polish your gut, when you know that you can trust that gut, then there are strategies to get out there. One strategy is write to yourself, as if it happened already. So I'm grateful that I'm in this relationship that I always, you know, like I desired, it's different from what I grew up with, maybe, you know, whatever that the truth is for you at that moment in time, right? This is how I feel in this relationship. And if it's hard for you to do it um, in a holistic way, just focus on your five senses first, right? This is the way that I look at that person. This is the way that that person looks at me. This is the way that I feel when we touch each other. This is the way, feel it, feel it, own it, and be grateful for it. There is good science now. It's not positive psychology, people. I'm a nerd, trust me. I go to the depth of things. (laughs) You do. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's supposed to make sense, right? Yeah. But it's very important that believe that you have that capacity many of my clients I just you know put them through role play and experientials bring them out of themselves and then I offer them what they ask and you should see their bodily reaction they close their arms they walk back their hearts start beating they don't believe in themselves they don't believe that they deserve what they desire Mm. some people don't know what they desire you know and that's sad but very easy to solve Yeah. Right? So if they write to themselves in that relationship in gratefulness, right? So I'm grateful that this happened. It becomes very clear for them. What is it that I'm looking for? Right? And then go to the other side and think that person that you thought about, do you have things to offer to that person? Because many people stop at that level that here's the person I want. Would that person want you to? If you are looking for a person who lives in um, China, right, and you are living like in Arizona, how are you exactly going to make this happen, right? How Mm. are you even going to logistically, how is this going to happen, right? Right, So be realistic about it. I'm all for sending energy intention to the universe, but people, you need to do like hard work. Yes. You know, yeah. so it's a strategy and then go to tactic to put things in place. So you know yourself, you're truthful to yourself. Make sure that, you know, you know what you're desiring. Make sure no part of your body is opposing it.
0: By tenseness or shrinking back.
1: Like yes. You're saying. And I don't believe it or I don't believe me, you know, all of that. When you are completely aligned, there is no obstacles to hold you back. Then you are going to plan for it. So the other thing is when you go on that date, it's so important beforehand that don't go with a lack mentality. If you go to that date because my life is empty, because I need that special one. I have clients coming to me and I am not kidding you with a half key chain, you know, pending on their neck and then i you know i do a lot of somatic you know awareness raising for my clients and i say what is that oh when i moved to new york i always thought that you know this will remind me why i'm here i'm here to find love wow if that's helping you to set intention i'm all for it but if that key is supposed to bring you that person and remind you what you're missing yeah that lack that, that is not ideal. a good mentality to go to dates yeah. with because that person is going to check themselves: Did I say the right thing? Did I not? It—it's it, lack of presence, then, right? Because yeah. I'm sitting in front of you, checking myself: Did I check all the boxes? Does she like me? Does she not like me? What is going on? Am I sitting properly? Oh, mm, what is that? What is she? You know, <laughs>
0: while now, you're digesting your food and sipping your wine. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah.
1: laughs> so you yeah. know all of those things: Do I have chemistry or not? You know, do, 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 you know all—all all of those. So that's lack. Abundance mentality, check your vibration before the date, you know, your core, wherever your center is, okay? Feel enough and then show up to the date. I'm enough. I'm seeking abundance, right? And I am the abundance, right? And also, I have enough to overflow to this person. That's a very different mentality than I'm going there for you to fill all of my voids and gaps. That's a gorgeous mantra
0: to walk around the world in and to go on dates with. Absolutely. I would love to hear a bit about this wonderful questionnaire that you have um, had in the works for some time for healthy relationships. Would you tell us a little bit about it and what people can
1: expect from it? Absolutely. Thank you for asking, because that's so like such a passion of mine. Uh, Before that, August, we talked about um, physical attraction. Let me also clarify something, because um, as a person who worked with couples for like 15 years, if the physical connection is not there, nobody can create that. Let me make that clear. So I'm not talking about go with somebody that you're appalled by. You know, and then right. just go with them, and it can be created. It cannot be created, people. It cannot. <laughs> yeah. It yeah, honestly yeah. cannot. And there Thank are um, yeah. again scientific reasons behind that. Maybe your chromosomes, the chromosomes uh, don't match. Maybe you know your bodily energies don't match. So all of that. What I'm talking about is you have to be like attracted to the person. You know, admire their presence, and also move towards um, f- um, sexual harmony. So if you feel like, um, because sexual chemistry will fizzle out, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and then when it, when that fizzles out, it's very important that you create sexual harmony with each other. That's why many couples say, oh, reignite into, you know, like passion or, you know, whatnot. I play a tune. You listen. You play a tune. I play a tune. You play a tune. It becomes a beautiful melody, that melody is beautiful. You can listen to it for the rest of your life. It's never boring. So there's nothing to be reignited. Okay. Yes. But if you are going off of that passionate novelty, you know, everything that is very sensualized, you know, sensualized uh, in the world, um, then you're setting yourself up for failure. I just wanted to put that out That's
0: there. such an important distinction. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. It's very, very important to keep that in mind that, you know, don't, don't look for someone who is not appealing to you. Yeah. And just hope that you could just make it work. Yes. Th- the attraction has to be there. But then also having that sense of I am enough. And I'm, you know, seeing that potential.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, asking themselves, what is the meaning of sex for me? For some people, meaning of sex is that excitement that you know, whatnot. Before you reevaluate that you cannot get to a relationship uh, with people in a monogamous way forever. You know, uh, because that person is going to have a different experience than a person who gives a meaning to sex as a part of the relationship, as one way of connecting with the partner, not the way of connecting with the partner, you know? Yes. Or uh, gaining self-worth. So these are the things that, you know, I think it's very important that, you know, people pay attention to. Not a questionnaire.
0: Yes, please. I'm so
1: curious about that. I'll tell you where it came from. Two places. You know, I work a lot with corporate on the connections and intercultural fluency and stuff. I realized that in corporate, we have really good tools for 360-degree evaluations. And, you know, so look at me, look at you, get feedback and improve whatnot. not. We we don't have that in relationships. No. And if you look at the quizzes that are out there, again, the mentality that created that, right? Uh, There are really good quizzes out there But to me, they were not enough, you know? So there were certain aspects that were missing for my couples that I see, right? And I will tell you one of them loud and clear, thinking style. Thinking style. If I think when I talk, and if you think when you are in a quiet zone, we're not compatible. (laughs) That's such a good point.
0: I that's not something that I think most people would even consider when they're dating someone. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that becomes an issue.
0: So you should ideally have
1: a similar thinking style is what you're saying? It depends. Some of these, you know, when they when couples take the questionnaire they are going to get a visual of that. It's a pretty comprehensive one. So it's not for, the, for people who get bored easily. It's like, a, you know, a, they take it, take it It takes about like a 30 minutes or so. But then when they go through it, the visual report that they receive, it shows them which areas that are very strong for them and which areas they are not as compatible. Now, some of those areas, like thinking style, uh, there's a middle ground. You know, And I send recommendations for them because I analyze them personally. So it goes, like, for example, if that's your way of thinking, that's your way of thinking, here's how you need to create space. Like, for example, if your thinking style is by talking, you need to talk it out with somebody else and then bring the result to the partner. You don't process that with the partner who is not there to receive. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. You know, so very simple, very simple. So those are there. However, there are certain compatibilities that could really go deep. Let's say, for example, a person says, my sense of identity is my Catholic upbringing and religion, and now they're dating a completely agnostic person. And they might get along and, you know, you know what not, but if they want to have a baby and raise their children, now what? Hmm then they end up in my office. <laughs> I bet. And I can't do much. That's a big one. It's a very, you know, it's this is very important because some values, they are non-negotiable. Absolutely, yeah.
0: This actually ties in really well with our listener question. And then I'd love to have you share how people can take your questionnaire as well and, and experience this, this uh, wonderful quiz you've put together. So this question, let's see, is about um, having different value systems around raising your kids. And our listener wrote this. My boyfriend and I have been moving toward marriage, but one thing is really holding us back. We both want kids, but I want to stay home with them and be a stay-at-home mom. He wants me to work, because how will we afford to take care of kids if we have only one income? I think our backgrounds are really making a difference. He grew up going to daycare while his mom worked two, sometimes three jobs. My mom stayed home with my brother and me Were we perfect? No, but we were happy. I have always wanted the same for my kids and myself. Call me old-fashioned, but I really want to be a traditional missus who cooks and does laundry and runs a home. No judgment for moms who want different things, but even after going through law school, I can't imagine anything more important for me than being at home. We had a big up fight about this, and we probably said things we should not have. Turns out things can be a lot more complicated than I realized. Uh, She did add that they did talk about... The desire to have kids or not. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say.
2: KJ, thanks for your question. You know, and I think I want to first start by highlighting something that you said, which is turns out things can be a lot more complicated. You know, I do think relationships are complicated, and I think it's fantastic that toward the beginning of the relationship, you really did clarify what I consider non-negotiables, right? Like whether or not you want to have children, um, whether or not you have a particular faith and you want your children to be raised in that faith or religion. There are definitely questions, I think, that, especially as you're getting older and more serious about relationships and thinking about you know, potentially settling down or getting married, that you don't wait two, four, or five years in to be having these conversations. But I think it's also true, as you're saying, that, you know, my expression is roll the camera forward. Do you have sort of the same idea about what your family life would look like? And it seems like in this context, you and your boyfriend are on a different page. And it does make sense, in a sense, from the fact that you both grew up with You know different experiences. You know he saw his mom working multiple jobs to make ends meet, and he was in daycare. And sounds like I'm imagining that he's doing amazing in his own life in his own way. And you also had the experience of a mom who stayed home, and to your point, wasn't perfect. And I'm glad you're happy, and I hope and assume maybe your boyfriend is happy too, because again, what works isn't a one size fits all solution. And I do not, on any level, want to make light of your desire. Right, your intention is this is what I really want. I want to be a stay home mom. And you really value the role, um, the very traditional role of, you know, the cooking, cleaning, scheduling. And so I think that part is amazing. But I also think you can't discount the fact that you have to look together um, what is your earning power and potential? Because is it realistic that based on your boyfriend's job or Um, career, you know, does he have sort of the same economic income potential that you do, you know, being a lawyer? Um, Because, you know, I'm raising two kids in New York City, and I can tell you it's kind of expensive, and um, although I am a mom who wants to work, I'm like you, somebody who also wants to have dedicated time to my kids. And so I, for me, the solution um, was, you know, part time, right, finding a balance between work and spending time alone with my kids, especially before they go to college. So I don't know. I guess part of me wants to say to you, have you thought about the other options, right? That this isn't all or nothing. Is part-time that something on the menu for you? And importantly around this is knowing that, you know, finances is honestly one of the biggest stressors on couples and marriages, sort of right along with sex and religion. So, you know, it can't be... Um, minimize that really, as I said, rolling the camera forward, what would look like life look like if it was just based on his income versus, say, if you worked part-time. And another piece I'd like to say here and sort of to plug for any woman listening is, you know, this is an area that they don't really give us education about. You know, when I went to, um, you know, a liberal arts college and thinking about next steps and, you know, we're thinking about majors, but we're not necessarily thinking about and what is going to be given the career path you choose or major you choose, are there options to go in and out of the workforce, right? When you have children, or if you don't have sort of the steady trajectory and, you know, are you going to hit the glass ceiling or what are the other barriers you may hit? And do you really have an option to bail out and in any way come back into your area of expertise? I think that it really would be important as young adult women that we often do have really strong ideas about the future we'd like for ourselves and, you know, whether we're gonna stay home with the kids full-time, part-time, or whether we're really passionate about a career. And given that, really thinking through, especially before we get advanced degrees, you know, is this something that I see fits into my lifestyle and the future that I want and the family that I wanna have? So, you know, what I'm encouraging you to do is go back to your boyfriend and really first think for yourself. Is there a both and here? You know, what are you know? Where do you want to live first of all? Because, as I said, New York City is an expensive city. If you know you're going to live, say, in Oklahoma, I would imagine potentially you could live on one income. So I think this, these are all really important variables from a perspective of lifestyle, where you're going to live, and really getting into the math around what would be cost of living like in any given. Um, city or town so and from there with the numbers i think that that's going to give you a better sense of realistically how you both want to raise your family because i think at the end of the day it's to raise happy healthy children right who um really are interested in figuring out their own unique gifts and ways of contributing to the world in their own lifetime so um, as always i would love to hear how this goes
0: Thank you so much Dr. Megan. I love what she said about things definitely being more complicated that it's great that they had these conversations in the beginning but that we aren't really taught so many of us to think about things like financial planning and and all of these other layers that are related to some of those non-negotiables and that having more conversations and and um and also what she mentioned about finding ways to compromise and maybe it's the cost of living in one place versus another place maybe you can work part-time there's so many things that kind of you know come up with this with this question she made such great points is there anything that you would add sarah i
1: would ask that gentleman what is the real challenge interesting i think the real challenge might be i don't want to stay home wife because of the different shifts, and you know, I've worked with so many couples, and I really liked what um, Megan said, also, because they they are compromises, definitely, that you can do part time, and then after a while, you can do, you know, full time, uh, go back, and um, there, and I I see the I see this discrepancy a little bit deeper, and I wonder, um, what is the point of respect for them for one another? If they're respectful, like you know, if um the gentleman is respecting the lady because of the law school degree and, you know, intellectual capacity, you know, all of that. um, How would he regard a woman who is staying home, taking care of children? So that's the gender role. And, you know, like uh, that sort of, um, I wonder what they respect each other for. uh, What is the point of admiration for one another? And how different scenarios is going to impact that? Because those ingredients that I mentioned to you, um, shared vision, just quickly. Shared vision, respect, uh, physical um, connection, compassion, and as well as compatibility. These are the ones that, you know, respect is a big part of it. And I, I think there's a respect issue going on for.
0: That is such a wonderful point. That makes so much sense to me. It's interesting. Whenever I hear questions about having kids, I, since I don't have kids and I've never wanted to have kids, I. I don't really uh, know how to relate to to those specific things, so I would never give someone advice on that. Um, but one thing that struck me when I was reading the question was, I wonder what um, this person's relationship to her law career is too, and did she want that degree? Was was mm-hmm. a pressure on her to have this degree? Did she is she in an internship and she hates it? Mm-hmm. Um, has she always been passionate about what he you know like I it just made me wonder a lot of different things. It sounds like There could be a lot of um, conversation and, and opportunity to hopefully learn more about each other, right?
1: Sure. And that's very insightful of the couple to have the conversation now. Many couples don't. They just close their eyes and jump into it. And then later on, they realize that, oh, dear God. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So where can we find this wonderful questionnaire of yours?
1: Ah, it's on my website, actually. It's called, um, you know, it's a relationship 360 and relationship health check. So yeah, and I encourage people to be as honest as possible, as honest as you can be, because your partner is going to see it too. But <laughs> yeah. it's very important for people who are in long term relationships. And I usually recommend it for people who are already in some sort of a relationship and thinking about long-term relationships or couples who've been together for years and years, they can take it also. And uh, another reason that I encourage people to take it, not only because I designed it and I'm biased about it, but also because by the time that people get to a couple's counselor, they're already gone. It's very difficult.
0: They're already in a state of crisis, yes, right? Yes, very, yeah, very.
1: And so much residue of anger and resentment and, you know, all of that. So I love people who come to me pre-maritally, you know, or pre-anything, pre-long-term relationships. So we've been together for two years. And uh, so what do you think? Or we are dating for 11 weeks So what do you think? Are you compatible? You know, these are the couples that I feel uh, when you set them on the right route, it will work. So look at it as a preventative measure. this questionnaire rather than just you know assessment and giving you like you know bad or not a test not a pass
0: or fail that's so exciting I'm very excited to take this I think (laughs) it sounds wonderful so everyone can find it at com, and it will be linked in the show notes and also on the follow-up blog post and also Sarah I know you accept clients here in the Los Angeles area and you work remotely so people can contact you through your website sure sure Beautiful. And World Sexual Health Day uh, celebration you're having at Stanford is coming up September 26.
1: Yes. And it's free for everyone to attend. Wonderful. Thank you
0: again, Sarah. You're so amazing.
1: It's always a pleasure to sit with you. Thank you.
0: And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe if you haven't on the app you're listening on and leave us a rating and review. If you swipe up or scroll down on your smartphone app, if you're listening there, you can find links and more information. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com